everyone, my name is Al Crawford and welcome to this Mumbrella and Exponential podcast series that we're calling The Point of Connection, partly because we can, but partly also because each episode is dedicated to examining a, a powerful point of connection between brands and consumers. Today on episode one, myself and our panel will be discussing voice and artificial intelligence. As usual, there are oceans of bullshit and buzzwords operating in these territories, and we will try and cut through all of that clutter and deliver devastating simplicity and insight. Fortunately, I have the guests who deliver on that, and so let me introduce them. Tyler Greer is the Director of Global Sales Strategy at Exponential. Over a 20-year career on both agency and client side, his diverse set of roles have included digital planning and buying, copywriting, publicity, media strategy, and branding. He's also a regular contributor at Mumbrella. We have Douglas Nicholl, who is a founding partner of creative agency The Works and its sister business On Message, Australia's first dedicated messenger agency, and I'm sure we'll come back to that in a bit. He's one of the country's top authorities on AI and has worked on projects including Foxtel, ING, and GSK that features uh, that the AI. He's also a regular speaker on the subject at Mumbrella events. Finally, I have Nick Abrahams, who is a partner and global head of technology and innovation for law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. He's also got a thriving career as a speaker, combining his tech and innovation industry knowledge with his love of comedy. They sound like two things that would never mix, but Nick has managed to mix them, so he is a genius. He's also written books and is on the board of ASX-listed software company Integrated Research, as well as a number of government and not-for-profit boards. So welcome, everyone. Uh, Scott Galloway, the very monotonic professor at NYU Stern, taught last year about 2017 being the year of voice. We've also seen some big Super Bowl ads for the likes of Alexa. Is this the year of voice? It seems to have been rumbling towards us like the steamroller in Austin Powers. Do we think voice is finally upon us or is it still a fairly fringe technology? One thing I'll say about naming this the year of voice is that at least it stops us naming a year the year of mobile once again. Um, these things happen incrementally. I'm not sure there is a year off, but as a, as a, as a buzzword and as a, something to put our excitement around, certainly this is the year of voice, absolutely. So we, were, we are going to hit a tipping point where we have access and the amount of households that are using this, purchasing through it. They're, the estimates now in the US at least are that by 2020, we're going to be looking at about a 30% penetration of households with voice technology. Um, but even to date, only about 15% of the owners of a voice access point have used it for shopping. So I think we're still fumbling our way through what we're going to use this for, how how it's used, how we interface with it, how comfortable we are. Is it the year of voice, perhaps so far as we're concerned in our respective fields? Yes, perhaps the rest of the world has a little bit to catch up on. Um, I think it's no surprise that you're seeing Super Bowl ads around this stuff because now is the time to get the early adopters, get locked in because once you have that, you have them probably um, on an ongoing basis. So that doesn't surprise me at all. So it's a land grab that's on right now by the big guys to try and bed down the population where they can. Yeah, Al, I might jump in there as well. Let's Nick, just um, I agree entirely. I think it's interesting to see where Australia stands compared to the US in terms of voice. Because if you look at Alexa in the US, it's almost 20% of the US population, of the adult US population, have Alexa at home. 
Whereas in Australia, there's been an unusual approach to it because if you look at the way Google Home has come out against Alexa, and so Google Home was available pre-Christmas and everywhere, so you get in all, all shops and so forth, and they moved an awful lot of product uh, pre-Christmas, whereas uh, Amazon was not available, the Echo wasn't available pre-Christmas, and now it's only available actually from Amazon, uh, so you've got to buy it on Amazon, it's not available through JB and the other retailers. So it'd be interesting to see, there's been a big land grab, I think, in Australia by Google, they've got a lot of devices already out, maybe they are soaking up the early adopter market, and whether they can um, you know, get a jump on Amazon here, which they didn't get in the US. Tyler, just take us back, though, to this idea of, as you say, a single interface. You know, you were talking earlier about the fact that actually these companies come from different start points, different associations, different perceived expertise, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It seems uh, ludicrous to imagine that we'd have all three servicing us. But I suppose from a consumer perspective, if not from a corporate perspective, how, how does that play out? How do you figure that out in your mind as to which one you gravitate towards, do you think? Well, of course, the market will tell us and it'll be tied to a particular utility. So whatever that might be, the market will tell us what matters to them most and how to best use voice. Now, if we look at... Uh, promotions and, and advertising and branding for phones now, it's not about making calls, it's about camera. Now that utility became elevated above almost everything else on what is effectively a telephone. Um, now there's going to be a particular utility in the voice sphere that matters to people more than anything else and whoever can have ownership of that will probably have ownership of just about everything. Now that may turn out to be shopping, in which case Amazon will have a leg up upon everybody else and they can build out their offering there, but at least they have a starting point, a revenue model, point of connection for people that they'll want to be a part of. Um, it may not be that, it may be something else, it may be home operation and search and mapping and everything else um, in which Google has the best foothold. Or it might simply be about a particular type of companionship, organising your life, um, intersecting with all your other devices, in which case it may be Apple. We're not sure yet, I don't think. Um, and once that is established, then it's for brands to understand how best to operate within that new ecosystem. At some stage, somebody is going to win or at least attempt to win the war for voice technology. So to try and put you guys on the spot, do you have any sense at the moment of who's going to win in the end? Look, I, I think there's a lot of people who could lose a lot if they don't win in this, this war to own the interface with AI. And I, I would suspect Google, it's a matter of survival to win in the war, particularly of voice, because they still earn 80 to 85% of their revenue through AdWords. And if they are disintermediated by another smart speaker, suddenly their rivers of gold have gone. And so I think it's not just a nice to have, I think it's mission critical for some of these organizations to be um, to, to, to stay alive and stay, stay big. Does that involve hand-holding in Tyler's romantic vision or does that involve uh, fisticuffs? I think, uh, I don't think there'll be any hand-holding. I think they all hate each other. And, uh, and I think it's going to be hand-holding the consumer to actually get comfortable with this and providing simple use cases, not complex use cases, for why you would use 
you know, for example, a smart speaker. And, and you know, one of the most popular use cases is, to, you, know, you know, spin a coin, heads or tails. You know, people are very, very simplistic on how they use it. We are so far from them doing their shopping on it. And I think it's all very well for latte sipping advertising types to, to have it there and they're doing all the cutting edge stuff. But your average Aussie is using it, if they're using it, to flip a coin. And that's the important thing to remember. We actually need to hold the hand of the consumer and slowly build up confidence. Don't come in like we did with Siri. Siri was going to change our lives and would be with us every step of the way. And you know what? 90% of people tried it you know, five or six years ago, and very few people returned to use it again because we oversold the dream. And I think this is about underselling the dream and being handy in people's lives in lots of little ways and building confidence over time. Do you think it's it's going to end up a world where you have your one intelligent agent who's sort of your interface to the whole world, and that's the that that's sort of the person the person you know obviously it's a bot but who knows you who knows everything about you, uh, and so that's your access point to the online world, whether that's retail or you know search and so forth, and potentially into your offline world. Because I, I do see that that's. That's potentially where this awkward head, which is you have you have your one agent, which which is responsible and could even be smart enough to blend over into your into your work life as well. Well, I would like to think that we would have our own personal agent who represents our data, represents our needs, represents our point of view, and uh, and and it will interact with other bots and with other forms of AI to make sure that our data is well used and to filter out the bad stuff, the Cambridge Analytica type stuff. And so I think in the future we will have much more control of our data because we have mastered, you know, um, the the whole area of personal AI and, and, and something that actually is fighting for us, you know, every day. And, and tell me something, just while you were on the subject of shopping, for example, um, the all-important subject of shopping, uh, Scott Galloway again has talked about voice as waging a war on brands, for example, or the death of brands. Uh, we always like, as Mark Ritson has said, we like in marketing uh, the uh, hyperbole and, and a death cult as well. There's nothing so good as using the words the death of in the same way as the year of yep. is also what we like to use. But talk to me a little bit about whether he's right in that respect. No, I, in fact, I think precisely the opposite. I think as the access points to purchase narrow, then branding becomes ever more critical. Um, so if we are using voice to order something, if we run out from the fridge, other than defaulting to what our normal orders are, we're going to have to specify what brand we would like to be ordered. Now that may be out of the fridge, it may be new batteries, it may be whatever it may be. Um, that means branding upstream is ever more critical because what we need to be front of mind, we want people to gravitate towards our brand, we need them to actually specifically mention, verbalise that brand when we're making an order through these places or search for it via these voice mechanisms. So in my mind, everything um, upstream that leads us towards a voice order system or shopping is going to have to be brand priority number one. But for example, so just to poke and prod on this a little bit, uh, Tesco, I think, have already discovered from their analysis of, of, of the data that people tend to lead with the category rather than the brand. 
um, and particularly in consumer packaged goods spaces where we're talking about, for example, what Nick was talking about, about almost domestic purchases or domestic-based purchases. Let me provoke you a bit, Nick, and say that Scott Galloway is, is no fool um, and that the data doesn't lie, particularly for a section of low-interest brands. Uh, that are staples, for example, no matter how well branded, uh, this is the death knell, isn't it? Despite what Tyler says. <laughs> well, well, Tyler is the expert. I'm, I'm, I've, just been, I've just been brought in here because Douglas told me he went to South by Southwest. And I was hoping you'd tell me about that. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not shy in having an opinion. So I think, um, I do think for uh, products where there is no clear, discernible, market differentiation mm. uh, we've, we've got a real problem so if I think to just an anecdote I was speaking to a guy in the US I mean admittedly this was um, you know this was in Dallas so he's a Texan but he would have been I know mid 50s I reckon and he, he said Alexa had changed his life so he literally the, the use case he gave me was I will say to Alexa I'll put on some music um, you know, put on put on the, the music that I want to hear for go to bed, and oh yes, I I need to get some shopping. Um, sorry, some laundry detergent, and that was his use case. I need to get some laundry. That's all he said. So now, presumably, Alexa knows the laundry detergent that he likes, and I think that's Tyson's point, which is you've got to win that land grab. Which is how do you make sure that you know you've trained or that you know your consumer has trained Alexa that when you say laundry detergent, they immediately default to the laundry, to your laundry detergent. And I think that's interesting. I'm going to throw it over to Douglas here because obviously Scott Galloway, his, his demonstration is uh, fairly clear, is that he says, Alexa, buy me some batteries. And the two things that are suggested are different formats of Amazon batteries. It is presumably not in Amazon's interest, or at least from a margin point of view, is in their interest to recommend their own products and so therefore isn't it is it, no matter how well you think you have taught Alexa no matter how well she may well understand you there is presumably locked into the AI and into the business a predisposition to recommend products that benefit Amazon look at a superficial level I think there will be um, you know payment for endorsement and those those kind of things but I feel like that's just like the short-term conversation, I think the longer-term conversation, I think um, a certain type of marketer is a threat. I actually think the lazy marketer who doesn't retrain, who doesn't rethink um, this world, who expects there's some cozy paid interruption advertising solution, they will disappear. They'll go off into another world because the world of conversation marketing is a world where you should be looking for at least an hour of conversation between the brand and the person. So we've recently done a you know, Foxtel Wentworth chatbot and we got one hour and nine minutes of conversation between a piece of artificial intelligence through chat and fans of the program. That's what you should be aiming for. And that means that you need to step out of the old boring world of interruption advertising and actually say, what are the services and utility and passion points that I can engage the consumer with to really get 
a conversation that they want to come back to frequently and uh, and that they will enjoy and uh, it is handy in their lives as opposed to a brand just going on broadcast and uh, delivering a very a very shallow solution so so I think the future is very exciting for marketers providing they retrain this world of conversational commerce and conversational engagement is very different and it's almost like a combination of the marketing department and the customer service department and operational departments coming together to deliver something much deeper and much more holistic. So I think the lazy marketer will die and I think the future is incredibly exciting for brands and marketers. And I think that's the that's the world we're already in of course. I mean the social media might provide a good template for this. Um, in, in any case, the smaller brands have always struggled um, against the big ones because they don't have the budgets, they don't have the marketing teams, um, but they find a way. The good marketers find a way, and they found a way through Instagram, and they found a way through Snapchat, they found influencers, they found other ways to connect with marketers, sorry, with a market that understands that two-way communication, and those who can adapt to voice will do the same. Um, the proposition that branding is dead, your brands are going to die because the voice is ludicrous. The good ones will find a way and they will change the way they take their brand to market. But if they don't take their brand to market, they're not going to survive. That's the difference. And and I think this blunt instrument of um, you know the way we've used social media marketing and so forth and AdWords is, you know, we will look we will look back at this and think that was like the caveman. Um, you know, and we were just beating, you know, we were grabbing bulk data and, and interrupting people's uh, daily lives. And I think people, you know, we see what's happened with Facebook. Now, how fast has that turned on Facebook um, because, of, because of the way that they've been engaging with things? So I think we are seeing a loss of trust uh, by the consumer in, in those sort of free platforms and exactly where I hadn't fully realised when I was giving my data over that I was going to be paying this sort of cost. I think I think we will see uh, a reaction against that. Well, well, tell me a little bit about that as well, Nick, because obviously we've just seen recently with the likes of uh, Cambridge Analytica and some of the sort of skullduggery that's been going on. Uh, I, I'm not sure facilitated by Facebook. I think in some ways Facebook were, were blindsided and yeah. ambushed by it in many ways. But how, how far are we then from voice being the next phase of people suddenly discovering how much data they've inadvert- inadvertently given away? There are apocryphal stories of couples in the States that have deliberately started talking about getting a pet to see whether they subsequently get retargeted by stuff. So this sort of almost silent data capture that's going on. How, how nefarious do you think uh, the the voice side of things is, is, is going to be and, and how aware do you think people are of exactly how much their data is being captured by something that feels less like you're committing it to even electronic um, paper I suppose this feels like something that you're, you're is, is as natural as breathing so so how, how, how far are we from that and, and what are the dangers? I, I think the thing about voice interfaces there's probably three aspects that your voice, first of all, <clears throat> your voice print is unique. Okay, so it's one of the most unique things you have. And a machine can tell when you speak whether it's you and can separate you from anyone else. So that is extraordinary. The second thing about voice is it gives a machine um, clues about your emotional state. And one of the big things that everyone's scared of is losing their jobs and AI being this big scary thing that we see portrayed in popular culture. 
But the advent of voice does allow us to get clues as to the emotional state of whoever we're dealing with. So if I'm trying to get someone to take a test drive for a car and someone clearly through their voice checking the weather or you know, doing their shopping, we can tell they're stressed, they've had a bad day. That's probably not the time to go for the test drive offer. Okay, so I think the great thing about voice is it, is it will allow us to deliver empathy to a degree that we've never been able to offer before because we do have clues as to how people are feeling. And that is one of the greatest barriers to conversion is you know, just dumb programmatic stuff chucking messages at you doesn't take into account your emotional state. And the great hope of voice is it will create emotional artificial intelligence data that actually allows us to do our job much better. And I think that's really exciting. Have you just created artificial empathy? I love it. I love it. Hang on, copyright Douglas. <laughs> Look, I, I, I think that's right. You know, what's what's fascinating is to see how how quickly things have changed. A couple of years ago, one of the big TV brands had their voice-activated TVs going out in people's homes, and then it was identified that in fact they kept the voice channel on, and the voice channel was continually feeding back. Uh, information and they said that that was so that they could learn how to make the machine operate better um, but they, they had to shut it down you know this was front page news etc etc whereas now people are like sure I'll get uh, you know I'll get Amazon and Google I'll turn them on in my house so they're listening every hour of the day it's it's it's, it's just a remarkable proposition to me that we would open our houses and our personal lives to to that channel with the full knowledge that that channel is open now it it may be that uh, you know th that it's only open when we uh, we actually summons it but we would need to see it. Does, doesn't that open up some fantastic things if you're having an argument with your partner about you said this, no, you didn't? You can actually just go and replay and actually find out who's speaking. That sounds like the worst idea yeah. ever. So I, I, prefer, a, I think I preferred your artificial empathy. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think anyone's ever won uh, a fight yeah. with their partner in, yeah. in the true sense. And certainly yeah. going back to the evidence never are you, helps. Are you saying the facts are irrelevant? <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't think we should go down this road, <laughs> is what I'm actually saying. Um, I, I, think, I think, Nick, you, you raise a very interesting point, and Tyler, I'd, I'd love your point of view on this. I think part of, whilst, you, again, people within the industry might be aware that if you're, if you're not the one paying, you're the one being sold, I think people are now waking up to that with the Facebook stuff. I think you make a point, though, is that at the moment, for example, we have these wonderful things in our homes, and it looks magnificent, and it's great fun to interact with. I suppose the question is, is will there be a waking up moment at some stage as well where we suddenly realise that they are in there 24 hours a day possibly harvesting things all, all of that time? Do you think people realise uh, what, what they whilst there are obvious benefits what they're getting into it. I think um, how people feel about this is usually an emotional response uh, and it's usually tied to the outcome. So the fact that the Cambridge Analytica story um, and what that means for Facebook data and all of our data and how it's being utilised um, by particular brands 
all political parties. The way we feel about that is seems to me to be completely tied to the fact that it was tied to Donald Trump and maybe helped put him in office and it includes Steve Bannon and all these other nefarious sort of players. Obama didn't do anything that was terribly different. He got a whole lot of data. He understood how people were feeling and he shaped a campaign around it. Now, we're all horrified because there's a Trump story in here that ties us to somehow we were perhaps in, implicated in getting him elected. So suddenly there's an uproar about data. I think everybody knows. I think when it's serving our personal interests, we're happy. We've made that sacrifice. We've decided that convenience trumps, to coin a phrase, um, <laughs> privacy. We decided that a long time ago and we happily hand it over. Now, maybe we don't understand what we're handing over. Now, unless there's a, there's a shock and awe moment like that when it comes to voice, when suddenly having something listening to our every conversation, the arguments between partners in our home, and that somehow prompts, you know, you guys should think about marriage counselling, something like that, then we've got a problem. But right now, I think unless it's tied to something that is really horrifying, like what we've seen in the US election, people will happily give this stuff over because it apparently makes our lives more convenient. Excellent. So convenience, as ever, the winner in these yeah. things. I wanted to turn to, uh, with, with, uh, to to something that Douglas talked about, actually, um, the idea of kind of empathy, the idea of our, how our relationship in some ways with artificial intelligence as it kind of moves on. Uh, Douglas, how far are we away from... Uh, Nick, Nick was talking earlier about um, an example of where... Uh, people feel sorry towards artificial intelligence or they feel worried about uh, the uh, the individual, you know, serious feelings, yeah. for example, or what have you. How far are we away from uh, Joachim Phoenix and she and falling in love with our personal assistants or at least having some kind of relationship with them as they become more and more human? I, I think because we have a fundamental fear of machines, we like to turn them into people, you know. Uh, that that is our default position. As What's humans. the word for that, Douglas? Anthropomorphizer, <laughs> <laughs> which I've never been able to pronounce. I should clarify that Douglas can't say the word anthropomorphizer. <laughs> this was why but, I was lobbed in. But it is interesting if we look back even to 2001: Space Odyssey, um, Stanley Stanley Kubrick's movie. You know, AI through Ex Machina, all these movies, pop culture, AI is always a bad thing. You know, it's a negative thing. And I think the reason we turn objects into people is to try and soften that a bit because we are, we are fearful of what machines will do to humans that we're basically going to die, mm. you know, or at least have our jobs taken away. And some of our jobs will be taken away by machines. Let's, let's be very clear on that. But, uh, but I think it is really important that, uh, that, that we, we start to think about AI in a much more positive way because what we don't hear about are the incredible advances in medicine that are happening as a result of AI. You know, the ability to predict someone having a heart attack, for example. We have, in the last 24 months, we have leapt forward enormously in our ability to diagnose some really important medical conditions and actually AI is saving lives rather than taking lives. So, so I think we, we need education. We need to actually think about this and understand the bits and the use cases that are actually changing lives. Yeah. Yeah, I, when, I'm, uh, when I'm giving seminars on AI, I have, um, I have this footage that I run which shows uh, Atlas, Boston Dynamics Robots, which clearly is a robot. It's a machine. It doesn't have a face. And it's getting pushed around by its handler. And in the end, it gets pushed in the back and ends up on the floor. And there's an, always an audible gasp uh, when that happens. 
And then at the end, I, I asked people to put up their hands if they felt sorry for the robot. And, you know, I get 95% of people put up their hands. I think we are human. We do not like to see things get mistreated. I think we will develop relationships. And, and right at the moment, you know, it seems like, oh, that's just sort of some weird techie guys who are building, you know, sex bots somewhere in a dungeon somewhere. I think, you know, in five years, I think it will be very standard for people to have quite an emotional link to whatever is, you know, their bot of choice. And, and I, I think we will, we will absolutely get over that thing. And the more they look like us, uh, then I think, you know, that, that bridge becomes, you know, very, very short. And you look at, I think, you know, we've certainly made bots to appear bad, mostly in pop culture. But I think if the, the, there's that scene in Blade Runner where Rutger Hauer at the end, that um, tears in the rain scene, where he muses about what it means to have been alive and what's the very nature of consciousness. And, and I, think, I think it's all going to get incredibly blurred the smarter the machines get. We already feel emotional attachments to our phones to a degree. Um, it's horrifying to think that it's not within arm's reach at any one point. Um, but it's still a bit detached. It's a phone. And we don't have a complete emotional relationship with it in the way that we may with a robot or something that has a voice. Voice seems to change the nature of the relationship profoundly. Um, and suddenly we do feel like we have an interaction with it. And sometimes I tell Siri to shut up and Siri will tell me I was just trying to help it. I say, so, sorry, Siri, I apologise. <laughs> Siri, hello. Um, so it, it's amazing the change that voice makes in the relationship we have. And maybe that seems to be what's causing the audible gas when you see the robot push over. It may not be the fact that it looks a bit more human or that it performs certain tasks. It seems to be that voice, which is, of course, how we mostly form our friendships and our relationships with humans that seems to underwrite that emotional connection. So that's going to be really interesting on the interface between people and technology moving forward. Um, what that means for brands, it might be the great promised land where suddenly we can deliver brand stories or brand suggestions through a device that people have a genuine emotional connection with. What does that mean for the nature, uh, the exchange between brands and people as well? And what does that mean for shopping and our shopping habits? All these things start to change as our relationships change with these access points. Yeah, and I think as an extension of this thought of we're entering the era of empathy, character design around mm. the, the voice yeah. and the chatbot interactions we have is going to become increasingly important because you want it to be an enjoyable, empathetic experience. And that means that you want a character that you're dealing with, with voice and chat, that's you know, enjoyable and, and fun and you'll actually see people coming from other industries to help with that. So for example, if you look at the Capital One chatbot that's been very successful in the US, actually they've had a character designer from the TV industry mm. come in and actually build the backstory of their chatbot so that you really feel like you're dealing with a very rounded character. And so I think for brands that's really interesting because most brand guidelines don't actually think of a personification of the brand. So it's really going to you know, stretch the edges of what a brand is and who a brand is and, uh, and how it converses with humans. So, so the creativity attached to that is, I think, very exciting. And what does it look like when a car can sell itself? Uh, there's, I remember from, to go back a few years, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a fantastic scene at the restaurant at the end of the universe 
where Arthur's sitting at the table and they wheel out the pig on a tray. He says, um, good evening, sir. Would you like to try my delicious flank? And isn't my belly fat and succulent tonight? And he says, I want no part of this. I can't speak to the thing I'm about to eat. Um, but I think when it comes to other brands and other categories that maybe they can start to develop their own personalities, this is a great challenge for brands. It's one thing to come up with a brand identity. It's quite different to come up with a brand personality that can actually articulate itself, its benefits and why you should choose it and try to really drive that emotional connection home. So it's going to be very interesting for brands in this space. So far from the death of brands, I would say a huge opportunity and interesting time for brands. That's just about all that we've got time for. I'll finish by thanking my guests, Tyler, Nick and Douglas, and let you know that our next podcast in our series will examine viewability, engagement and measuring success. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our series on iTunes and find out more about this episode and the rest at mumbrella.com.au. Bye.